Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store, located at 1200 Central Avenue in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. Welcome to Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what is in the glass. We dig a little deeper into the stories, the culture, and the history behind the wine. I'm Gina Birch. And I'm Julie Glenn. This is the hap-happiest time of the year for wine fans mm-hmm. in Southwest Florida because the Naples Winter Wine Festival is happening this weekend. So that means that for the week surrounding the multi-million dollar charity event, world-class winemakers and wine principals are roaming our neighborhoods and we're out trolling them, trying to lure them. <laughs> into the studios. We're out front with a hook. Yeah, <laughs> to talk about what else? Wine, of course. Today we have Champagne Luminary Gilles de la Rousière. De la Rousière. Very good. Did I get it? Gilles de la Rousière. De la Rousière. <laughs> Gilles de la Rousière. See, you're so much better at that. But you've had a whole <laughs> lifetime to practice. <laughs> From Maison et Domaine en Rio. Uh, thank you for coming in and talking with us. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Gina. Yes, it's good to see you. So Oriol is one of the rare independent champagne houses that have been family-owned since its inception. That was back in the 1800s. Absolutely. The early 1800s. Yeah, 1808. Yeah. Um, and it's – so you're the eighth generation? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I, it was a, a foregone conclusion that you would be in the in the family business or was that kind of a, a, a circuitous route to get there? Oh, I think it's both the result of uh, – you know, you need uh, several factors. Of course, being uh, from the family, having the passion of the wine, and having the uh, the, the desire to share these emotions of the uh, that provide the greatest terroirs of uh, of France, but also, of course, legitimacy and le- leadership in terms of managing the company. Yes. Right. Because I know that there was a time when, uh, I think it was in the 30s, when economics di- were not really friendly to Absolutely. champagne. And a lot of the family-owned champagne houses went bye-bye. They were sold and swallowed up. But how did you guys manage to just power through and push through and maintain and grow? And Well, that's that's true that today uh, champagne is uh – uh, evoking a glittering and, and very fastuous uh, situation in life, but it's not always been the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the uh, in the mid nineteenth uh, century, we have the war against Prussia, and then we had we had the First World War, and then we had the Great Depressions in the thirties, and then we had the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And uh, amidst all that, we had the Phylloxera crisis. So it's not always been a very a very um, rich and prosperous activity. But you're right, in the 30s, um, uh, you have to to have in mind that uh, champagne was cheaper than milk. My goodness. I can't imagine. Oh, could we return to that? I mean, I know. I know there are other things I don't want about the 30s to come back, but that would be kind of cool. That, kind of, that part kind of made me happy because <laughs> I could just have, instead of milk in my refrigerator, a bunch of champagne bottles. How would, yeah. mil- how would champagne do on Frosted Flakes? That's Amazing. the question. <laughs> it would be good on anything. Oh, yeah, <laughs> true. Talk about snap, crackle, and pop. <laughs> <laughs> so in, there are ups and downs, fluctuations, and one of the things that uh, was said to me recently was 
in the wine industry, you get to live like a millionaire, but you never become a millionaire. <laughs> so um, as we're writing these fluctuations, where is champagne right now? I think champagne is in a very uh, in the in a very um, uh, particular situation where you have uh, both great brands and uh, nice houses. Uh, most of them non-familial anymore, non-family owned anymore. Some very nice family-owned houses, among which we uh, we are, and um, a vast production of um, uh, cooperative champagnes, and then a few growers that uh, go back to their uh, to their vineyard, find back the passion of what they are doing, and decide to produce their own champagne. So it's it's very. Um, uh, I mean, there is a great disparity of situations, uh, but overall, the market of champagne is uh, is quite good. I mean, uh, 2019 has not been the f- most fastest year uh, in terms of expedition. I think the uh, uh, uncertainty about tariffs, maybe we'll talk about that later, and uh, the tension between uh, the countries, uh, China, America, Europe, all that is not good for business. But uh, despite all this, I think the figures are quite good. And for people who are making quality champagne, who are focusing on quality, on emotions, on the wine, maybe more than on the the marketing and the mass market, uh, there is always a room for a nice uh, nice life. Have you seen um, much change since the October 25% tariff went into effect? On champagne, no, because no. we don't have any any tariffs yet. Okay, uh, okay. Tariffs are more for us a concern about Burgundy wines because uh, the family has bought also Bouchard Perifis mm-hmm. and William Fevre in Burgundy. And you know that all the wines that are uh, below 14 degrees of alcohol are, are taxed, subjected, uh, yeah, subject to a tax of 25%. Of course, it has an impact. Um, uh, probably more on the entry-level wines, mm. and uh, uh, that's for sure. I think Premier and Grand Cru, the very fine wine, will always survive that kind of decision. Uh, but for entry-level wines, yes, it's, it has an impact definitively. It, it's not not yet visible on the market, but uh, because we are still living on the stocks that has been that have been sent before mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the the tax of the uh, October eighteenth, but I think in the next uh, week, uh, maybe next month, we will we will feel it very very uh, accurately. Yeah, it's just people uh, importers are afraid to put things on the water because once it arrives in customs, they don't really know what they're going to be facing That's as okay. far as what yeah. kind of tariff. Yeah. So the pricing is just unknown until. The day you get it through customs. There is an uncertainty, and it's not good for business, of course, but um, well, we have to deal with it. And yeah. we, are, we are quite small. Um, we are uh, family-owned, so we can make decisions very quickly. There is no uh, tons of uh, committees to, to take decisions. We can readjust our setup, our priorities, and uh, I think also uh, that's the most important thing. We are making high-quality products from the finest terroirs of the world. And uh, 
there will always be a market for this product. Mm-hmm. And as a businessman, I mean, of course, we, we, we have a great relationship with the U.S. and, you know, we're one of your top markets. But you also can diversify. And if you need to uh, send some some stock or some uh, dis- increased distribution mm-hmm. in other parts of the world uh, to keep your cash flow coming in, you can do that at least temporarily until we uh, get back. I have a question. This is kind of like a weird one. Do you try mass-produced champagne ever? Like when's the last time you tried a big, glossy, heavily marketed champagne? Like mass market kind of champagne. When you say you, you, you mean me or you? You personally. We never tried. That's not what we are looking for. That's, what, that's not where we have passion. Where, where we have passion is selecting the best terroirs, selecting the best growers, getting the best grapes possible, making the greatest wines possible, the great ex- expression of these terroirs, and then blending them to have uh, the unique style of Orio based on Chardonnay, based on a, on a very elegant and luminous style. That's what we are interested in. I'm not interested in huge volumes. Mm-hmm. Or just knowing what they taste like and be like, oh, God, can, why are people buying this? <laughs> well, I, I never comment on the other uh, products. But, yeah, we can. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can say that I'm proud of my product. <laughs> so the Elevage that you make, and that's the blend, that's the term for the blend, sometimes you have 30, you have multiple. I mean, you don't just have three or four. You take bits and pieces from yeah. many different vintages and crews. I mean, it's quite a, a puzzle that you put together every it, year. It's, it's a very complex puzzle because we are mixing. Uh, the know-how of Champagne is, I think, very closely linked, closely linked to, to the, the art of blending mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the, uh, the climatology of Champagne has been very challenging for the wines until quite recently, in, until the global warming. And the way to uh, to um, uh, smoothen mm-hmm. the impact of the of the vintages and to have a constant qu- uh, level of quality and nobility of expression of the aromas was uh, to blend the terroirs, to blend also the uh, varietal Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier, and also to keep the wine for a long time in the cellars mm-hmm. so that the acidity uh, of uh, the lower uh, ripeness would be uh, tempered by the uh, evolution of the aromas. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really constitutive of the know-how of Champagne, and that's what we are really keen uh, at at preserving and developing. So when you are making a blend, you are actually thinking of what is the identity of Champagne-Oriot, for example. Mm. What is our identity? What are we famous for? What is the taste people, customers, expect from us and the level of quality? Then um, we uh, select uh, the wines from various terroirs, wines that we call the base wines, the mm-hmm. wines of the year, but also reserve wine that, that are wines that we have in our tanks for two, three, four, five, even ten years for some of them. And we build the architecture of the wine um, uh, using all these different terroirs and expressions so as to have... Uh, a nice uh, expression of the house style. So, will people expect a different wine each time it's released? Will it have? Will there be much difference between? People expect. If you're a fan of Orio, you expect a certain style. Mm-hmm. So, whatever the year, 
you expect to have the same emotion. You expect to feel at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the art and the know-how of the cellar masters of Champagne is to have a defined, distinctive style for each house. Oyo has its styles. The others have their own style. Right. And what customers expect is, okay, I'm opening a bottle of Champagne Oyo. I have the emotion that I am expecting from Champagne Oyo. Mm-hmm. My emotion is always happiness. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's hard to be unhappy. So basically the cuvées are... There is the entry level, I would say, the, uh, the, the most uh, common uh, cuvée. It's the ambassador of the house. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the largest part of the volumes. But then after, we have some special cuvée. So we have some Blanc de Blanc, pure Chardonnay. Uh, we have some vintages. Mm-hmm. So when the vintage is really very good and provides high, high-quality grapes, then instead of blending it with other uh, reserve wines, so wines from other vintages, we make uh, some cuvées with all the, the wines providing from the same vintages. And then we have also a prestige cuvée, which is called Emera, from the name of the goddess of light, mm. uh, which is really the selection of the best terroirs in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay uh, and for the very best years. And for these cuvées, for example, the, uh, you know, we are aging the wines in cellar for quite a long time. Regulation says it's minimum 15 months, but we are keeping them minimum three, four years in cellar. And for the cuvée MRA, for example, it's, uh, for the last cuvée, it has been uh, 13 years on lease in the cellar before mm-hmm. release on the market. You use a lot of ch- uh, Chardonnay and Henri Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Chardonnay is a part of our history. It's mm-hmm. our passion. It's, uh, it's part of our identity as a, as a family, I would say. Uh, a bit accidentally at uh, the beginning, in the late uh, 19th century, by a wedding, we, uh, the, the wife of Paul Henriot, uh, Marie Marguet, had a, uh, the heritage of a large domain in Côte des Blancs, so the most beautiful Mm. terroirs for Chardonnay and Champagne. And from that moment, uh, it's been really founding in the style of uh, Champagne Rio. And Chardonnay is providing uh, incredible elegance, Mm -hmm. freshness, great balance and depth. And uh, I would say that what makes the elegance of Champagne Rio is the high proportion of Chardonnay. Nice. It's it's really... uh, a founding principle of the of the blend. Do you ever take just Meunier and just take that all the way through, 100% with just a bottle of Meunier, make it into a single varietal champagne and just see how it turns out? We um, we are more about on, on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Yeah. Uh, but I always but love thinking about what Meunier brings to the party, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. we, we do use a little bit of Meunier in Brut Souverain. Um, because it brings, especially when it when it's young, it brings the fruit. It brings the uh, the, uh, the the immediate pleasure. I thought it was kind of a little spicy, but uh, a, little a little bit spicy. But uh, for the aging, I think uh, at Henriot we prefer uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Yeah, makes sense. Not my little childish whims. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go and do an internship there, maybe he'll let you uh, experiment a little with yeah. Pinot Meunier. <laughs> I don't know but if I would do an internship. Is... I could be there for four years. That'd be yeah. great. <laughs> we can't get rid of this intern. <laughs> but all this is, is expressing the, the diversity and the richness of the, uh, of the terroir, of the champagne, and the choices that we can make. 
I think what is important is no, to know uh, what is your style, what is your identity, and what do you want to provide in terms of emotions to your uh, customers. It's, it's more than a product. It's uh, a family that shares its passion and its identity, its values, its culture with the customer. So um, the marketing way of thinking of it, like I'm going to make a Pinot Noir, I'm going to make a, so a, a Blanc de Noir, I'm going to make a Blanc de Blanc, and I'm going to make a Pinot Noir, pure Pinot, Pinot Meunier, sorry, because like that I have all the category, product mm -hmm. categories. It's not that. It's what we as a family do, do we have to, to, to share with our customers and, and to the people. It's like taking a piece of art and saying, I'm going to paint this in all tones of blue, and I'm going to paint this painting in all tones of red and whatever, mm -hmm. and just leaving out all the other things. I think that would be very hard to ask any artist to do, so it would almost be contraindicated to ask um, the, with the family history and culture that you have of eight generations going forward Absolutely. and the way that the house has been established culturally and, and in your heart, it would be very difficult to do something mm -hmm. like that. The, the marketing way of doing things would be to make studies analyzing the taste of the people and then trying to respond to the taste of the people. But then we would be with no identity and nothing mm -hmm. special to say. We would be saying to the people what they expect us to say. Right. But we wouldn't share something that is real, that is uh, genuine and authentic. Like being true to yourself, being true to your yeah. house. Yeah. Well, besides uh, uh, the Champagne House, the you know, Enrue, you do some still wines. You do. You have some projects in Burgundy. And do you want to tell us quickly about some of the other things that you are that you oversee and yeah, you have? As a family, what happened to us is that in uh, in the 1990s, we had an opportunity to invest in Burgundy. We had a, an opportunity to buy a very famous uh, maison of Bur Burgundy, Bouchard Perefis. Mm -hmm. Bouchard was already at that time uh, um, probably the largest domain uh, in Premier Grand Cru uh, in Burgundy. And very uh, quick after the acquisition by the family in 1996, we acquired another uh, 30 hectares, bringing the, the domain to 130 hectares, of which uh, two thirds are. Premier and Grand Cru. So it's, by all aspects, it's, it's uh, very famous and, and very Those don't go for sale. House. They don't go for sale very often, though. Sorry? They're, they don't go on Vengeance. sale for uh, very often. It's not like suddenly this kind of a thing is on the market. No, was no. this but one of those things where maybe they sought out your Henriot? It's, it's very exceptional. You sometimes have some small domains on sale and, and people acquiring them. But a domain of that size, uh, of course, it's it's a jewel. So yeah. the families who have uh, the chance of owning such a domain, they are making all the, all the possible things to keep it in the family because it's such a pride and it's such a mm. legacy. It's incredibly um, rich in terms of identity, culture, and uh, and uh, and interest. So. Uh, so we had this opportunity, and now we are uh, also, uh, I am co-chairman of the Klima Association, you know, the association managing the uh, UNESCO heritage mm -hmm. in okay. Burgundy. And uh, so we are a big, big uh, player, but we are also a very uh, committed uh, family in, in the life of Burgundy, uh, both in the vineyard, but also in, in the value of this heritage. Mm -hmm. You've got a project in Provence, too. 
No, we don't have. So we. we, Rosé, I'm looking in your after after Burgundy. We went to Chablis. We purchased William Fev. Maybe some of you, some of our auditors know. Um, And and the last uh, domain we purchased was Beaufrère in Oregon. Very interesting. That is some good stuff. I've tried Mm -hmm. that. I've tried that. It's really good. Super approachable. Beautiful wine. Yeah, yeah. It's very nice. And you're also in Fleury. We also in Fleury, absolutely. Which is my favorite. She crew. loves yeah, it's a beautiful Beaujolais. crew of Beaujolais. Every mm. time Beaujolais comes up, I'm like, oh, I love Fleury. It's absolutely, no uh, Provence and uh, Tenuta di Gizzano, uh, the Italian uh, wine, are wines that we are importing in the U.S. Oh, okay. Because we have a small uh, business of import mm-hmm. in the U.S. based in New York. Yeah. Uh, that is importing our French wines on the U.S. market, but mm-hmm. also some uh, other wines, including this beautiful rosé uh, from Provence and these beautiful wines from uh, Tuscany. I have to ask, uh, getting on the state side, how did you get involved with Oregon? I mean, I know there are a lot of French producers who love the Willamette Valley, and they say uh, the terroir and, and the climate, and so much of it is very similar to Burgundy, is that kind of how you got involved with it as well? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say they're similar. I think. I think they are uh, very, um, very much uh, favorable to growing Pinot Noir. Okay, but I think their expression is quite different from the Burgundy one. At least I. I really want uh, Beaufrère to express an Oregon style, mm-hmm. an Oregon expression of Pinot Noir, not trying to copy the Burgundy because I think that would be a loss of value and a loss of, uh, of uh, heritage and legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did it happen? I think by chance <laughs> uh, because I was, uh, uh, I was I had taken the reins very, uh, very soon before and uh, I didn't expect I would make any acquisition out, especially 9,000 kilometers far from Paris. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. quite a challenge, but uh, well, the opportunity comes and the train goes, and you jump in it or yeah. you don't. <laughs> so I had this opportunity. I, I made it. I made a. I had a flight to Oregon. I met Mike Edzel, the founder. I I visited the vineyard. Um, we spoke a lot about our common values. What we. What what we cherish in, in terms of winemaking, in terms of vineyard management, and uh, uh, the consistency between our values, the vision that we have of winemaking, of the respect of the terroir, the respect of the vineyard, was so uh, incredibly uh, consistent uh, that we decided to go to go uh, together. So you were talking about the values. One of the things that I'm noticing is there's a lot of talk about sustainability in uh, the way your viticultural practices are. Is that something that has happened as a result of current events with learning more about climate change? Or is this something that's just always been the way things have been done? I think uh, sustainability, there are two ways uh, to to, um, focus on it. There is a bad way. And there is the good way. The bad way is to say clients require some sustainable wines, so we have to do it. Uh, I think it's a bad way because it's, it's, of course, it's necessary to give to the customers something they expect. But the deep reason is not just to satisfy the customer. The deep reason is just to be able to pass to the next generation the heritage that you had from the previous generation. 
and sustainable viticulture is part of it. If you are destroying your vineyard to have short-term yields, okay, you have the yields in the short term, but in the long term you lose everything. And I think it's all about this. And, uh, of course, in all our domains, we are uh, respectful of the nature. Some of them are organic. Some of them are not yet organic. But we have a very deep uh, involvement in uh, mastering the technique and making sure that we are not damaging the nature and more that we are going to uh, give to the next generation a domain in, in an even better shape than we received from the previous generation. That's, uh, that's very important. But I think also uh, sustainability and, and taking care of uh, the vineyard is one thing, but you have to be consistent also in the way you are making the wine. And I think today some labels, some, uh, some, uh, yes, some labels and some uh, stamps mm-hmm. uh, are leading a little bit into confusions because uh, they are just focusing on one aspect of the things and not on the global aspect of the things. Mm-hmm. A holistic approach, I see yeah, what you're saying. I think it's, uh, that's what we are working on. It's, it's an ongoing process. I think it's an everlasting, mm. it's an everlasting process. Right. Uh, and labels are, are giving the customers some reassurance about, on some criteria. But they are not giving uh, the full uh, story and the full uh, uh, legitimacy to the product, I think. We talked a little bit about the uh, consolidation of things and how little producers, smaller producers, family producers are getting gobbled up by big publicly traded entities in some cases. Um, I'm wondering how often do these types of places try to tempt you to – you know, slough off parts or uh, sell outright. Do you get approached often? Not really. I think I, I think th- people know they're going to get I a no. Yeah. People, <laughs> they know, pe- people know we are family-owned. People know that the family has a passion of what it's uh, doing, producing, and and um, they don't try. Yeah, and that's that's good because they wouldn't have great success in their try. You're like we're sending off the right signals. Right. Then <laughs> <laughs> the, the don't hit on me signal. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for uh, making great wines, and, and, and please pass it on to your family. We, uh, we appreciate your passion and uh, your commitment to making us smile with bubbles. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that's, thanks for continuing to export That's all to wine is about, is giving yeah. pleasure and mm-hmm. joy and uh, nice moments and friendship. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. We appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you very much. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producers for online media are Anna Bejarano and Tara Calligan. Technical production is by Mike Canary. Great Minds theme music for Zante is by Colin Manning. To get in touch, check greatminds.org or call the Grape Line and ask a wine question that we can address on a future show. That number is 707-200-3632. Thanks for listening. <laughs>